Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, this is Bob Hutchins. My guest today is Alex Kantrowitz. Alex is the founder of Big Technology. It's an independent publication and podcast that covers the inner workings of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft, hence the name Big Technology. His email newsletter goes out to thousands of Silicon Valley decision makers each week. I'm a big fan of the podcast and the newsletter. Alex is also an author. His first book, Always Day One, debuted in 2020. The book is a reported deep dive on the tech giant's work culture, featuring more than 130 interviews with insiders from Facebook, CEO Mark Zuckerberg, to frontline workers, etc. And it was named Always Day One, a business book you have to read in 2020. So prior to, fi- prior to founding Big Technology, Alex was a senior technology reporter at BuzzFeed News. And in 2019, he won a Mirror Award as part of a BuzzFeed team recognized for reporting on social media in the crosshairs. Before BuzzFeed, Alex was a staff reporter at Advertising Age. He began his career buying ads and selling ad tech software in New York. So we're going to look forward to hearing about that. Alex lives in New York. He's a graduate of Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks Thanks so much for taking the opportunity out of your busy day. As I said, Alex, I'm a fan of big technology and I've been listening to it for probably a year and a half, two years now. And I always tell all of my tech exec colleagues, if you want to stay in the know of what's going on, Alex usually has this nuanced up to the minute kind of perspective on it with some with some great, great guests on there. So before we jump into that, Alex, I always like to start the podcast with my guests sharing a little bit about their origin story. And I'd love to share with uh, my listeners, what inspired you to pursue a career in technology journalism? Was there a particular moment as a kid or a young man, or maybe you were influenced at your time at Cornell? I think this stuff is innate. If you want to become a journalist, you're almost born with it. And mm-hmm. certainly was the case for me when I was, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years old, I made a newspaper reporting on the stuff that was happening on my block. You know, there was a carbon monoxide leak or, you know, someone had, you know, met somebody famous and I would go get the story and put it out and, you know, print out a copy and send it to the neighbors. So how, how old were you when you did that? I think like maybe like eight years old, very okay. young. And probably yeah, young enough uh, not to know better. And then I got to um, got to Cornell, and I was studying industrial and labor relations. But there was this daily newspaper, the Cornell Sun, that would show up at lunch, and everybody would read it. And it was just it was just an object of fascination for me. And I would apply every semester to be an opinion columnist there, and I would get rejected every semester up until my last year. And I uh, decided to spend the first semester of my senior year abroad in Turkey and wow. said, uh, wrote them an email and it said, uh, my last column pitch ever. And it really was and said, listen, I'm not going to bother you again, but I'm going to Istanbul. And if you want something from, you know, the perspective in Turkey that, you know, can show up in the newspaper, whether it will be student life, more just like what's going on in the country, I'd be happy to do it. And uh, a month later they replied, gave me the column. So I wrote about you know, once a week from Istanbul. And then I said, thanks, I retire. This was great. And they're like, well, why don't you keep writing, you know, back on campus? 
And I said, what? <laughs> you know, because I didn't ever see, I didn't see any of the reaction on campus because uh, I was away and uh, apparently people liked it. And so that's sort of where it began. I ended up taking a job in marketing and then um, sold ad tech for a year. Once I graduated, you know, into the thick of the 2009 Great Recession, um, I didn't think that, you know, newspapers and news jobs were falling apart. I didn't even consider it as a career. But as my time in sales and marketing went on, I just kept writing on the side and the stuff started moving a little bit. And so I saw, I said, listen, I'm going to either get fired from these sales and marketing jobs or I'm going to leave willingly and, Mm. you know, do the journalism thing. So I chose the second option. Wow. So your first journalism gig was Cornell. And then where did you go from there? So my first staff job was at Advertising Age after some freelancing. I knew the ad industry pretty well. So I went to Ad Age. And then the ad industry powered a lot of the early growth of the internet. And so what I ended up seeing working in New York, being a reporter for Advertising Age, is all the money started going from independent publishers and ad tech companies to Facebook, Google, Snapchat, LinkedIn, you name it. And I said, basically, I can stay in New York and write obituaries for these ad tech companies, companies like Yumi and TubeMogul and Inmobi and all these other fun names that you've never heard of, or maybe you have if you're in the yep. industry, or I can move across the country and write about what's going on with the action. Mm. And then uh, BuzzFeed uh, opened a San Francisco bureau in 2015. And uh, I cold emailed the bureau chief and Next thing I knew, I was on a flight to San Francisco with two suitcases, and uh, the rest is history. That's amazing. So you were at BuzzFeed for, what, at least, what, five years? Six? Five years, yeah. 2015 to 2020. Man, in the heyday, I bet you've got some stories, huh? It was fun. I mean, being at that company at that time was amazing because it was a moment where social media companies were giving news real distribution. So you knew that if you wrote something that was half decent, it was going to be seen by hundreds of thousands of people through the Facebook newsfeed. Mm. And I mean, sometimes even more than that. And that was, that was pretty incredible, but obviously like it laid the foundation for, um, you know, a real shift because social media feeds got so filled with news that there were a lot of negative externalities there and publishers kind of got addicted to the news that social media companies were sending to them and they lost a lot of common sense. So that's obviously a big reason why we've seen such a shakeout in digital media recently and why we've seen social media companies move away from trying to feature feature news. Like you go to the Facebook news feed today and maybe you're in a specific group that talks about news, but if you're not, yeah, you'll be hard pressed to see anything political, news oriented. It's almost all um, friends and family and you know, like community groups now. Yeah. Yeah, I got into the digital marketing space in the early 2000s. I started my agency around 2001. And um, so I came up in in a similar time, maybe slightly even earlier, but but I remember that. And I remember when social media kind of obviously came onto the scene and started to develop. It was a real game changer for myself and my clients and the ability and the freedom, <laughs> a little bit of the Wild West, I'm sure you experienced but it was a fun time and it was an evolving time. And then I'm curious, you're the award at BuzzFeed for social media and the crosshairs. Talk a little bit about that. Why was that? Why did it win an, win an award and, and what was that about? Yeah. So at BuzzFeed, we were a publication that was, I think, one of the hardest on the social media companies. Um, 
we we reported like crazy on what was going on inside of them and how they were reckoning with this moment of being sort of central to the news like they and and, and what that meant you know th- at the beginning when you're an upstart you desperately want to be in the conversation right, right. you want to matter in some way and so in the early days in Facebook, when they saw like political organizing in Colombia, for instance, they took it as a sign of we matter. And you can kind of get hooked to that type of adrenaline rush of being in the conversation until the point where you grow to, you know, beyond your wildest dreams. And then you, you dominate the conversation, you filter the conversation. And we had done a series of reports, including a story that included an internal memo from Facebook, which, you know, may or may not have been written to provoke, but certainly included some bold promises of, or bold proclamations of why Facebook connects people, um, including this belief within the company that just connecting people was a de facto good, no matter what happened. And this being issued, you know, in the middle of a, of a time of real introspection and controversy for the company, uh, got a lot of people's attention. So mm. look, I think that that there's there are yeah, there are ways to examine these companies, both, you know, in terms of what they say inside, um, but also the way that their products work. I had a story with the um, person that built the retweet for Twitter talking about how it was like handing a loaded machine gun to four-year-olds and basically saying that um, the virality that this thing produced led, changed the incentive to, cre- to, to create and share content. And, um, I, I don't think that's like one of the, I mean, maybe you can link it in the show notes or something, but that's the headlines guy who created the retreat, you know, yeah. handed a machine, loaded machine gun to four year olds. Like, um, I think that, that it was just fascinating seeing how fast these companies grew, how they reckon with it and then what they did afterwards. And by the way, like their answer, it sort of goes back to the second, the, the question you asked just uh, right before this one, which is that they effectively said, you know, we, we wanted to be in the conversation. We are the conversation. And now let's get out. And they're in the get out phase now, you know, mm. damage control. And if you think about it, life hasn't been better for Meta. Right? Mm. You can change the name, got out of news. They're about to be a trillion dollar company for the second time in their history. Apple is following their, you know, number one most risky bet with the Vision Pro, which is coming out. Yep. And people are virtual signaling their, um, how, how righteous they are by being on their uh, Twitter copycat. Which, you know, if you told me that a few years ago, that uh, that would have been the most jaw dropping you know, thing out of all of it. So it's been a very interesting ride for Meta. It has. It has. And this this is an area, Alex, that is of particular interest to me because I in my studies, in my speaking, and in, in a lot of what I do here, it's about uh, from a kind of almost a media ecology perspective, right? Like what are the uh, effects. What are the pros and cons? What are the cultural influences, long term and short term, on all this online world? And I, I know you kind of touch and go in and out of that as well. Specifically on on social media, where where do you see it going? Because I've been around long enough as of you to see like when I when we started in social in in digital. It was okay. It was email. Then it was forums, and then it was social media. And then it w- then social media is not popular anymore. Now all of a sudden, when about the time people predict the death of of email, all of a sudden email newsletters are the hot thing again, right? It's like it seems to be cycling back around. 
What what do you think? And and I know you've talked about this, and you talked to some big names about it. What's the future of social media? Is it becoming more divided and and specialized? What, what do you see? So first of all, I'll say that email will never die. I think we can right. accept that now. <laughs> so obviously, I built my business around it. Uh, so that's definitely something that you know, no matter how many times people predict that email is dead. Like remember when Slack was predicting that email was yep. dead. That was the most ridiculous stuff I ever yeah. seen in my life. Anyway, so then um, what's happening in social media? So I think two things really. Um, so what do people go for the feeds for? To the feeds for A is entertainment and B is news or you know media that they get socially right from friends. Media social. So I think the social media element has now moved to group chats for the most part. Like people have group chats or they have discords, which are effectively group chats on steroids, and um, that. Uh, element of like link sharing is has gone there and then you have like the performative version of that which is twitter and threads right mm -hmm. so i think that the twitter threads they, their uh impact is going to be limited because they're just performance right yes like they're not a place to actually go share value that's all happening in the group chats and the entertainment side so i think you'll probably also remember this how like there was this evolution where we went from text-based to photo-based media right like that was yep. The, the newsfeed was always text and it was all pictures and then it became videos right now like on social media you're spending your time watching videos so like there's a natural channeling of activity on social media to go to the short form video platforms like a tiktok or like reels or like snapchat has their own uh new tiktok like thing within their platform you know so that's that's basically it so the social part of media is going to be in group chats entertainment part of social media in the TikToks. Speaking of group chats, you wrote um, uh, an article recently that I, I really appreciated. And it was your analysis in the big technology substack of WhatsApp increasing popularity in the United States. And I thought it was very insightful because I, WhatsApp, in my mind and in my world, I, I also deal with in my PhD studies and other places, I have to use WhatsApp um, because of the foreign connection. And in places like Europe and, and and other places around the world, WhatsApp is huge. It's their main source of of connecting and talking and communicating. But it never blew up like that until recently. We starting to see. And one of the things in your analysis is the changing landscape of communication, which you just alluded to it again, when we're talking about social media, but how do you think it's going to impact uh, user behavior and specifically privacy concerns? Because here in America, we've got this, in my opinion, over hypersensitivity to what we think is quote privacy, right? It's like, I want to be invisible. I don't want to be seen and I don't want you to know anything about me but I want to kind of do what I want to do online, right? Like that's not a reality in any other environment that we live in in real life. But it's interesting that WhatsApp, um, how do you think it's going to in, uh, impact that? And I'd love to hear how WhatsApp fits into your theory of, of how social media and communication and, and groups are, are expanding. Yeah. So WhatsApp, first of all, so I should say that I got a chance to see what was happening in the U.S. just a bit earlier because my antennas were already up on WhatsApp. So um, I met my wife in El Salvador in January 2022. 
so and then basically it was like still like you know people were like all working at home at that point she mm -hmm. was backpacking through uh central and south america and so i just picked up and joined her and like i worked at co-working spaces during the day and then we hung out at nights and and weekends and she's german so then mm -hmm. i went to germany when her trip was was done now she lives you know here in the u.s but that experience of you know having customer service interactions in latin america and then you go to germany and everybody's on whatsapp like you know nobody texts so i like my antennas were up for whatsapp already because of those experiences but then i kept seeing whatsapp appear more and more often across my interactions with americans now i think usage in 2023 according to some data that i saw was up nine percent and downloads up five percent right so it means that actually the people that had already had whatsapp on their phones are using it way more often and they're adding users it's like this one two punch not to mention that most whatsapp users in the u.s use iphones right, right? which is interesting so it's clearly there was there was there was movement outside of android users and it was growing in the u.s and it just seemed to be the case that people messaging has gotten richer right it used to be that you would send a message between an iphone and an android user and there might be some awkwardness because it was like a snot green bubble instead of a blue bubble and people would make fun of you for that or whatever but now as text messaging has gotten so much richer um you would start to see in in both of those apps both the, the messaging apps on android and the messaging apps or apple messages on the iphone that it was just like totally incompatible and confusing mm. to the user where you would see like instead of a thumbs up you would see like somebody you know liked your liked your um your text and someone reacted with fireworks like what the heck why are you writing that in text and then um you know in addition to that uh the the yeah the, the a lot of the energy of social media started moving to messaging apps and part of that is the group chat right the group chat has become now that social media networks everyone's social media networks blew up to the point where they were unsustainable people wanted to share with a smaller group of people this was behind Zuckerberg's whole pivot to privacy thing in 2019. He saw mm. where sharing was going, and it was in these small private groups. So yes, all the way, all the way um, uh, turned up now to 10. And the thing is, uh, people do not have the capacity to message across platform in groups on default messaging apps. It just doesn't work. Someone's always left out. Pictures don't render. Someone sends a GIF. Everybody laughs at it. Laughs at it. Two people have no idea what just happened because the GIFs don't render on, on Android. It's a mess. And Apple, in particular, has been extremely reticent to allow any interoperability. Now, there's a, a small movement happening now within the company. Right. iMessage or Apple Messages is a little bit more compatible with Android, but it's still going to be awkward. And so the point is that that became untenable. Americans started moving their group chats to WhatsApp. Um, especially within schools. It became a big thing for parents. Parents in schools, uh, they got together with parents in the class. You know, it used to be a Yahoo group or a forum like you were talking about or an email chain. Right. Group. Now it's all happening in the messaging app. Yep. And the thing that happens with parents in school is they make fun, they make friends with the other parents. And then, okay, what do you do? It's time to coordinate a hangout. You had a good time. You're hanging out by the playground or, you know, you're dropping your kid off. You have a good good conversation. All right, now let's figure out how to make plans. What are you going to do? You're going to go text them. You've been talking on WhatsApp in the WhatsApp group forever. No, you're going straight to WhatsApp. And so that has opened the door for, for much more usage and WhatsApp to be seen as like a default 
among American users. And now, I mean, iMessage is still the predominant messaging app in the US, but is that lead ever gonna, you know, go the way of the dinosaurs and have and 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 be at a place where WhatsApp takes over? It's possible for sure. I think it says something too, and I'd love to get your perspective on this. I was talking to to a colleague who's working on some research and I set in on some of a couple of her interviews and I one of them specifically and then I tested it out with I have older children and I tested it out with one of them and then I started doing my own research. I think we're going to see opportunities for both uh, things like apps like WhatsApp that can create this very private, focused, instant, easy connection with a group of people that I want. I don't want to go on Facebook and I don't want to engage with everyone there, everyone on Instagram. I want to talk to my people and I want to do it easily. And this one, I guess you would say almost middle-aged female that was being interviewed, she's like, oh, let me tell you about this app that I just love to connect with my friends. And the interviewer said, well, what's that? She said, it's Marco Polo. Mm -hmm. And Marco Polo has been around for I don't know, a decade or more. And it kind of started and it was teens were using it. never did quite pick up. And then I started looking at it. I downloaded it. I go, this is curious why she just absolutely loves it and her friends love it in the Northeast. And um, then I started seeing when you download it, it pulls in your contacts. And then I said, all of these contacts, mm -hmm. uh, my contacts of people that I know, but they're all adults. And so I was talking to my 24-year-old daughter and she goes, oh, I remember that in high school. Let me download it. And so the way she described it, it's Snapchat for adults. And um, I just wonder if it's just an epidemic of what you're saying. We're going to see these group chat, group communication where I can, I can be in control of my people only and I want to get away from the, the craziness on Twitter and the craziness on Facebook. And I want to just focus on my people, my group, my parents' groups, whatever it may be, and segment. Is it, is it a sign of our segmentation and personalization that we are learning how to do the technology enables it, but we're also trained to do, you know, i.e. Amazon and shopping and things like that. What are your thoughts? Well, I would say that, yeah, this is just going to, this is the default, right? Like we are going to move into these like smaller groups and outside, like other than Marco Polo or Snapchat, like one of the things that I've seen is that the bigger platforms just tend to tend to aggregate the audiences. So Marco Polo, maybe a flash in the pan. I have some friends that use it too, but my suspicion is there's a real network effect uh, at play and you want to be on apps where everybody, you know, messages. Maybe use Snapchat for like one or two people and that's, you know, that, that might be a use case. But like, I do think that the simpler, more basic functionality, something like a WhatsApp is going to be the thing that ends up doing yeah. well. Well, the question was asked of, of this of this woman, why do you like that instead of just mm -hmm. using your iPhone and using iMessage to send a quick video to your friends? And it was what you said. It was simple. It was quick. It was like two buttons. And it's done versus, you know, finding the camera, taking and then uploading it to and then finding your groups and texting it. It, it. I think the apps that are simple, easy and can connect uh, 
group chats in multimodal ways, potentially, I hear you saying that that could be a direction that things are going. Definitely. Yeah, the simpler, yeah. the better. And that's why <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not fully bullish on, on Marco Polo, despite the fact that yeah. like, it has some pockets of usage. You know, talk about simple and easy to use. WhatsApp really took off because it was able to work in low bandwidth areas, right? It was always fast. You could always rely on WhatsApp, right? If you wanted to get a message across, no matter what, you'd use WhatsApp. Yep. Right. No, it's it's no surprise to me that WhatsApp is the one that became the default and not Messenger from Facebook. Yeah, I agree. Well, I want to move a little bit toward the human side of tech, the area of the pool that I swim in. And in your interactions with leaders, I know in the book, I'll always day one and your day to day on big technology, leaders from Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google and Microsoft. Uh, I'm curious what you have observed as any common personal qualities, professional qualities, or habits that contribute to their success and likewise common blind spots. So let's start with success. You've you've spoken and spent time with, with Zuckerberg and other leaders from Google. I listen to it on a weekly basis, Apple, Facebook. What do you find and what have you observed from a human standpoint are common personality qualities that contribute to their success? I think that one, because tech evolves so quickly, you must be willing to gather data from numerous inputs mm. um, and not think you're the single source of truth. So maybe the old time CEOs would be like, they would have a vision and they would say, this is what the vision is and everybody would follow. And somebody said, you should change your vision and they would fire them. Mm -hmm. But in tech, the most successful leaders are going to get really get, you know, a more bottom up type of approach. In, in sort of extreme ways sometimes. Like they will be curious, they will listen to data, they will listen to employee ideas, they will change their mind. They will build in ways that are different than the ways that they thought they should build because someone made the argument to them, they tested it and away they went. So I think there's a, a real curiosity and openness and a willingness to listen, you know, among the more successful tech leaders. And, um, and that is also combined with vision, right? Like you can't just be the siphon of ideas. You need to have some vision as well. And then when you commit to it, rally the troops and make it happen, mm. right? Like a steadfastness and a determination in deciding the direction. But it's it's a tough line to walk because like you have both the openness and also the resoluteness, but it is possible to do both. And leaders like Jeff Bezos, for instance, um, Mark Zuckerberg, they have been able to do that. Hmm. And likewise, common blind spots in, in those personalities or leaders? So I started my last answer talking about inputs. And so I'll talk again about inputs. It's um, So if you have a feedback system, right, the thing can be the best system in the world, but if you have bad inputs going into it, your outputs are going to suck, right? And so, you know, you can get into an illusion of I'm listening to other people where your inputs are concentrated in one area and missing in plenty of others. Like if you're listening to people who are all going to say yes, right? Are you really listening? So I think the blind spot for some tech leaders is just making sure that they have a broad group of, of inputs, right? like a dispersion of inputs to make sure that they're listening to people with plenty of different varied perspectives, not a bunch of the people with the same perspective. Yeah. And I imagine 
I mean, this is just the nature of success. The more successful mm -hmm. you are, the smaller that pool becomes because who's going to say no or challenge somebody with that much power and fame, right? That's well, that's true. I mean, this is a thing like that's the that's the responsibility of the leader. If you have a lot of fame and power and you want to continue to succeed, it's your job to then bring people around you that are going to give you different perspectives than the ones that you want to hear. That's mm -hmm. on you. You cannot blame people underneath you. You're right. the one that determines the people around you. And you see that's that's where people get into trouble, whether it's leaders or celebrities, when you have groups of, you know, yes, people all around you trying to, you know, tell you how great you are and mm. they will believe it. But when you're actually able to surround yourself with people who, you know, will disagree and make a case for it and you listen, then you're going to be in much better shape. Mm. Yeah. And that takes a special person, right? Um, yeah. Because, because, you know, you've got ego, you've got money, you've got investors, you've got boards, you've got shareholders, right? Like Trapper all of these things are pulling at you. And to be able to sit in the middle of that and go, I want to objectively look at this and make the best decision for all parties involved. And if I'm wrong, I want to admit that because I want to do what is the best thing for the company. And that that's that's a rare individual, wouldn't you say? Oh, it's definitely rare. And it's why, I mean, if you think about it, like we don't have many of those leaders. I mean, mm. how many, you can probably name them the ones that are active, you know, on one hand. And yeah, it's a very special group of talents. But when you get someone who can do that, your company's in great shape. Yeah. And for those of us who aren't, at least we can try to approximate it. <laughs> yeah, it's a. I mean, it's a great lesson for just anybody, uh, right? Leading in any way and on any level to be able to to say, I want to surround myself with people who think differently uh, and who will call me out and challenge, and then I'll, you know, be willing to humble enough to to accept that and make a decision accordingly, the best decision. So I bet in your book always day one where you went deep into looking at the strategies of tech titans i'd love to hear kind of along the same line we're going can you share an insight or a story from your book that particularly surprised or intrigued you during your research definitely um so first of all like the title of the book is always day one and it comes from jeff bezos uh and I always thought that Amazon, you know, had this reputation as a tough place to work and always day one means like, what do you do on your first day? All right, you're going to work your butt off, right? And like maybe later on in your career, you're not in day one anymore, right? You're at the top of the heap. You can af afford to take your foot off the gas pedal a little bit. That was always my interpretation of what always day one meant. It was like, you have to come in as if it's your first day and work, work hard. It's actually like much deeper. So the coolest thing about being a startup on its first day is that you're able to attack what the market needs mm. um, when it needs it without having to spend a minute on a legacy product. This is why startups can disrupt uh, incumbents because they can focus all their energy on building exactly what the market needs as opposed to just being like, all right, now how do we make sure that we hit the number on our legacy business that's going away? Like managing decline, but also inventing is very, very difficult. And so... Each tech giant I've found, maybe outside of Apple, and it's probably why they've struggled to keep uh, uh, you know, producing hit products outside the iPhone. We'll see what happens with the Vision Pro. I'm very excited to see that, but we'll maybe talk about Apple later. But I would say that you know, with, with each of these companies, um, 
they have a system where they 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 find what the market needs by listening to their employees and they go ahead and build it but the thing is we're like living in this moment where like you need to be able if you're going to build new businesses you're not going to be able to do it on the current on um you know, by just adding ex- exponential resources all the time. Like the tech mm-hmm. giants have a lot of resources, but they can't just fund every project that comes in the door. And so therefore they have to find a way to like restructure their work to the point where they can be more efficient and then build what the market needs next. Almost set the, the you know, the legacy businesses on autopilot and then focus their best people on invention as opposed to um, life support. Mm-hmm. And so... Amazon for years has been working on automation within the company. I mean, Amazon's legacy retail business in particular is one that is built for automation, right? So they have these fulfillment centers and the fulfillment centers, like they order the same products every year and then they ship them out to the same zip codes. They know what every zip code is going to buy. You could give me your zip code. If I worked at Amazon, I could tell you what your lifestyle probably is, whether you like to do you know, activity A or activity B, what you do in the winter, what you do in the summer. Amazon has all the data on this. And they still had humans, vendor vendor managers, uh, they're called, um, on the phone with the brand, ordering the products to bring them to the warehouse, um, and then just making sure that they were properly stocked, setting the pricing, setting the promotions. This could all really be done by algorithms. And more than 10 years ago, the company started doing this. Initially, they called it Project Yoda, which was Mm -hmm. instead of using human workers, they were going to use the force. (laughs) <laughs> and the force was machine learning. Uh, but eventually that that evolved into a program called Hands Off the Wheel. And what what that looked like in practice was inside people um, in the retail operations dashboards and their software dashboards, they would have decisions, buy these products or automate the decision to buy. Set this price or automate the decision to, pr- to, to set the price. Set up the promotion or automate the promotion. And at a certain point, they would have to do 40%, 50%, 60%, 80% of their of all their actions they had to hit automate. And this was a way where the machine learning was was making predictions. They were actually seeing it happen in real time and it was adjusting based off of the purchase data, things like this. To the point where effectively if you were a vendor manager at Amazon, your previous job was was, you know, it's turned over to the machines, right? So it it has gone basically full on um, automation. They're efficient. And now that legacy business is on autopilot. What do we do? We've got to try to build the next thing. Now, listen, you've gone through the whole process of hiring the vendor managers, right? They know your business inside out. They're speaking to the customers fairly often, right? So what do you do if you're a company like Amazon? Do you then buy, do you then fire all of them and then hire a bunch of new people, put them through your process, train them up on the company and figure out what uh, what they should be doing? Because the traditional uh, stories about automation are that's what happens, right? Everybody in the retail mm. operation gets fired. Everybody in the, um, every, then all the new hires build the new, the next thing. Totally not what happened within Amazon. The vendor managers by and large became product managers and program managers working to build the next products within Amazon. Um, some left on their own accord, but we never heard of mass firings of these people. Largely, I believe, because they didn't happen. And I'll just tell you one story to bring this home. So, there was a guy named, uh, Dil- or his, his name is still Dilip Kumar, right? He works with an Amazon. He's an executive there. And um, he was running pricing and promotions within the retail organization. He spends a year and a half or so underneath Bezos as his technical advisor. It's basically a chief of staff that goes and takes every meeting 
uh, with Bezos and watches how he operates, learn the com- learns the company. At the end, you're sort of expected to go su- do something big. The first technical advisor that Bezos had was Andy Jassy, who mm-hmm. went and then started AWS. Then he now he's the CEO of Amazon. So Kumar goes and he does this. He, he's about to finish up. He looks at his old job. And he realizes that it's about his. It's about to be automated, along with his whole division, right? Like pricing and promotions. Number one thing you can turn over to machine learning. And so what he does is he takes a group of people who had been in the retail operation, and he says, "Okay, can we find something that's annoying about shopping in real life, and use technology to solve that problem?" So mm-hmm. they go ahead and they say, "All right, what's annoying?" Uh, okay, checking out. People love to browse, but they hate waiting online with the shopping carts and all that stuff and you know, checking out each individual item. It's, it's a very frustrating part of the shopping experience. You just want to get out of there. So they initially conceive of this idea for basically a huge vending machine where like you could punch in all your groceries and I guess it would like suck them off of shelves with tubes mm-hmm. and then spit them out in a basket to you. They bring it to Bezos. He says, no, not good enough. There's better technology out there. Use it. And then they say, well, what if we put some cameras and sensors on the shelves and monitoring, you know, and, and yeah, monitoring the people who come in so we could track them through the store, see what they pick up. And then when they leave, we know what they've bought, push them a receipt. And that became Amazon Go, which is now operational uh, in public, but even more importantly, is going to be a foundational technology that Amazon, I believe, will license out to retailers. They'll be able to be on every shelves in every store. Like, I think this is going to be the way that we're going to pay from mm-hmm. now on is through is through this Amazon Go technology and the only reason it happened was because Amazon took the legacy business took the legacy business effectively put it on autopilot through automation didn't fire the people asked them to tackle a new problem they took the skills and the knowledge that they had built up through their existence at Amazon and put it toward a real problem solved it with technology and delivered this foundational tech and i think that that is so counter to the narrative that we hear today about all the doom and gloom and automation and like going inside Amazon, learning that story. And by the way, the book comes out in April, 2020, you know, years before this whole generative AI movement Mm -hmm. um, sort of prepared me, I think for this moment where now everybody's talking about the end of the world. And it's like, wait a second, like (laughs) let's hold, let's see what's actually happened in reality. And it's not exactly the way that, that a lot of the doomsday folks make it out to be. Yeah, Sorry, no, that was a long one, but no, that's that's story, that's so. brilliant because I've always said I use Amazon as an example, Alex, when talking to clients about first party data, because talking about coming up early and the rise of of social media, like we all as ad people, and that that's your background, apparently. We had a blast with third party data, right? Like we mm-hmm. could scrape that stuff and take it and chop it and then Finally, you know, privacy concerns, technology. In the last couple of years, everyone's just running around like a chicken with their head cut off saying, oh, no, third party data is going away. What are we going to do? Um, we're back to first party data again, right? We're back to email, which, again, I think that's another reason. But what Amazon's always been about first party data, they have built, as you said, their own kind of walled garden existence city that if if there was a dystopian event that happened right this is how the example i use like the the value of that of what they built and and what you the tech of the which which you so eloquently describe is they could exist without the internet literally because 
they have built the tech. As long as they have electricity and gas, they built the delivery mechanisms. They have the regional warehouses and distribution. They could literally print with their print-on-demand. They could have a business around printing catalogs and mailing them to your house because they know where you are, who you are, what you purchase, what you like. They built the infrastructure. They have the trucks and everything all around their own uh, first-party data, right? If you if you want to get as simple as that. And to me, anybody can learn from that. If you're just going to start up and you want to have an e-commerce business and you want to develop your own product, start with that mentality in mind is what can you build? What can you use the tech, the new AI to automate so that two, three years in, you know who your customers are. You have an email list. You have the tech. It's automated, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's the the beauty of Amazon. It's amazing to me that very few companies will follow that and learn that. Instead, rely on other third party, like you said, tools, mechanisms, ways of doing things. It's fascinating. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Well, I know we're winding down on on time here. We have time for a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Apple. I'm a huge Apple fan. If you were to come into my house, like so many other people I know, we've got so many Apple devices. They've hooked me. Um, it's a great company. They make a great product and the products just work and they're smooth for the most part usually. What is it about Apple in your opinion as you cover all these tech giants that makes them so unique? Well, they're like the true example of you know measure twice, cut once. They're very deliberative about what they do. And so they've been able to make you know, exceptionally refined devices. And that's, I think, what you like so much. So, and I mean, I do too. I mean, I have an iPhone and a MacBook Pro. Uh, so, you know, definitely like into Apple products. Um, that being said, like, if you're so cautious, I do wonder if you can really be able to transform yourself mm. in moments where there's new waves of technology. Because inevitably, like, what, the only rule that we've had, you know, since... Um, you know, the beginning of Apple is that the mediums of technology transform. And they did a great job transforming like from the desktop to mobile. No doubt they led that charge and still lead it. Uh, But what happens when you move to voice computing or what happens when you move to AI? What happens if you move to, you know, this mixed reality world? And I don't know, I'm kind of curious. We haven't seen Apple successfully navigate a change like that since the Steve Jobs era. And there's potentially going to be one or more of those coming up in the next decade or so. So that will be the real challenge for Apple. As a huge Apple fan, actually, I'm curious to hear your perspective on on what you think. Are you going to buy the Vision Pro? Probably not. I'll probably wait until the second version. I did see as of this recording today that they did it went on sale and they did sell about reports somewhere in that 160 to 180 range, and they were hoping to get what 350 to 400, 450 over the whole year. So it looks like they're potentially going to hit that and they made a cool, you know, what, half a billion dollars in revenue just releasing it. So I think time will tell with that. What I'm concerned about and interested is at what point where will their developers who have been so loyal to them, um, can they keep in step with Apple's pace and will they align? So for instance, it's still unknown how the Apple Vision Pro will be integrated into daily life. Some people say it is 
it's an augmentation. Some people say, no, it should be a substitution for the laptop and how we engage, right? Like that seems very Apple-esque, but then again, they're not going to replace one of their main profit centers, which is computers. And where does that leave the developers? Where are they going to push? Are they going to follow and get behind Apple's vision for augmented reality? So those are all the questions I have is like, that is a, they're starting to enter into uncharted territory, but I also have hope and I'm somewhat optimistic to know that what we have seen and learned from Apple in the past is that they're working on things several years ahead. So it'll be interesting to me how their own AI, I don't think, I, I mean, I could be wrong and you may have inside information. I don't think they're trying to play catch up and get a vision for the future. I think they have been working on this in their own way. And potentially the Apple Vision Pro is where we're going to see uh, glimpses of that, if not full on development in that area moving forward in the next year or two. Yeah, it'd be cool. I mean, I'm definitely excited to try the device and see how how it works out. But yeah, are you going to get one or are you going to buy one? <laughs> I'm just going to try it on. Buy it. <laughs> yeah. Big technology is not profitable enough that I can spend thirty hundred on it. Uh, but I mean, yeah. Anyway, I would say like, come on, I mean, like if you're gonna, I, one of the things. So remember their commercial, like in the early in like the first release event, like. Let's say yeah. you're going to use this for movie watching. By the way, speaking to developers, Netflix is not participating. But let's say you're going to do it, right? So let's say you have like a, um, you know, you have a partner and you have maybe a kid or two and you want to do a movie night on like a, you know, thousand inch screen on the Vision Pro. So are you then going to buy devices for like four people, four times 3,500? Like those, that that adds up like yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree. It'll be interesting to see how they, if you look at all of their devices, they have so many versions and styles and and kind of price ranges. You know, the the iPad has got kind of ridiculous, right? Um, As did some of their computers, because you had things that seemed to be doing the exact same thing, but at different price points and, and features. So will they follow the same mode? That even their watches with the, their augmented reality glasses are, who knows, but that, that'll be interesting. Last question I have for you. Okay. Um, personal learning curve. In your journey of covering all these diverse aspects of technology, Alex, what's been your most significant learning curve and how has it influenced your approach to journalism? Yeah, I love this question because I was thinking about it and it's like, you know, what do, what what is the personal learning curve? And then I'm like, wait a second, like it's it's every day, right? Like every day, I, and this is not a cop-out answer. Like I am struggling to learn something every day, trying to figure it out. Like that's the job of mm. in journalism. It's one long learning curve of trying to get up to speed on something that matters and then realizing you haven't taken something into account and adjusting your perspective base off of it. So it's, I think, the most fun job, uh, you know, in the world because it is this constant, like, you try to figure out what's happening, then you do it, you have to adjust, speak to more people, tell readers, tell listeners what you've learned. Like, it's awesome. So it's like the most, you know, the most fun learning curve you could be on because it just never ends. Yeah, I, I think that's why I love tech and and specifically the online digital world. And now with AI, we've got something really fun that's gonna transform everything and we're going to be learning almost daily on that most definitely 
All right, Alex, where can people find you if this is the first time they're hearing about you and your podcast and, and publication? Where are the places? Yeah, you can go to bigtechnology.com. Uh, we have the, uh, both the free newsletter and a premium subscription, which I definitely encourage people to check out. I'm about to start up with some Q&As. So we have the head of uh, the dean of Stanford Medicine is going to come on and talk about how AI might transform the medical field. Mm. And we have Kurt Wagner from Bloomberg, who's the author of a new book about Twitter, is going to do. These are Q&As with, with subscribers. So definitely things that I think people will get a lot out of. And then the podcast is Big Technology Podcast. We release twice a week. Uh, once is a flagship interview with me and a guest on Wednesday. And on Friday, we recap the news with myself and Ron John Roy, who's a great analyst and writes margins on Substack. So I hope you all check it out. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Great to be with you. Really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. <laughs>